the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, and I'm on 860 WGUL, The Answer. We are on iHeartRadio as well, so you can reach me on your smartphone as you move around. And if you want me worldwide, I'm on the web at 860-WGUL.com. That's 860-WGUL.com. Click Listen Live. I think it's in the upper right-hand corner of the web page now. And if it's Sunday between 9 and 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, then you'll get me. We also have most of the shows saved and you can also go to the webpage at 860wgul.com, and you can look for the weekend schedule, go down to my name and face, and you can click on the link to the podcast. So if you want to hear it over and over, if you're that crazy, then just have at it, guys. So today I'm supposed to have on a, a gentleman who's going to talk about why Medicare is not working and how it has failed people. Um, we're still waiting for him to call, but in the meantime, I want to jump into this because <clears throat> this is interesting to me. I like this sort of thing. I like the numbers, and I wanted to share with you the Congressional Budget Office's projections a few years ago, it was projected that by 2036, the amount of interest we paid on our national debt, that's the money we borrow from China, Swiss banks, SODs, Warren Buffett, whoever, whatever groups are big enough to buy big pieces of our, our debt, and they do this by buying treasury bills or notes and they're promised to be repaid at a certain point in time, five years, ten years, depending on the length of the note, and there's interest attached to it, although during the recession I think it was pretty close to zero. Now it's maybe 1% or 2%. And so as these become riskier, just as in any business, they become junk bonds, junkier, and of course you have to pay more interest if you want to sell your notes because it's more of a risk for those who are buying them. Well, by 2036, a couple of years ago, the Congressional Budget Office said that we would be paying as much in interest as we earn as a country, our gross domestic product, which, of course, is not sustainable. It's what we call bankruptcy. And 
we know that that can happen. It's happening to Greece. They've been in informal bankruptcy and reorganization. It happened to Ford, uh, not Ford, I'm sorry, GM and Chrysler. And everybody said, well, they didn't go bankrupt. Oh, yeah, they did. That was a government uh, chapter seven or whatever chapter it is that does a reorganization and says we will pay certain debts, but certain debts we won't pay. And they don't sell off all the assets. They reorganize the business. Now, if you go for the full the full boogie, the full tilt boogie on bankruptcy, then what you end up doing is saying, here's everything that I have. Of course, everybody tries to hide something, but you have to turn all that over to the trustee, the bankruptcy trustee, and then the trustee owns those and holds those in a trust and at, and liquidates the assets. So if you have uh, a motorboat that's worth $5,000, then the trustee, she or he will take that and put that into the trust fund, so to speak, and they will try and sell the boat. Let's say they get two or three dollars, two or three thousand for it, then the people who are secured on the note will be able to get some money back, and those who are not secured, unsecured, then they will not get anything back if there's not enough. First come, first serve. Of course, the IRS is in the front of the line, then the banks, because they are smart enough to put liens on everything. But at any rate, so we're about at the point in, at 2040 where we'll be broke because we won't be able to produce enough to pay our interest. So at any rate, uh, we've got Dr. David Hogberg on the line. And, and uh, Doc, come on in. How are you this morning? I'm fine. And forgive me for correcting you, but it's actually Hogberg. Hogberg. Yes, hey. yes, yes. Okay, so it's a German pronunciation. Uh, yeah, German or Swedish, I guess. <laughs> German or Swedish. All right, so you're 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 up there in the northern parts of Europe. Your family was. Yes, uh, my dad's side. Yes. Okay, so if you're Swedish with that name, I'm going to guess that you are not Catholic. You were raised in what Lutheran or. Actually, I am Catholic because my yeah. mother uh, was Ital- is, is Italian, and uh, my dad didn't have a lot of interest in religion, and so I was, uh, I was raised Catholic. Well, so was I, but Dad was Jewish, and uh, he turned his back on Judaism when I was a youngster, and he converted to Catholicism, and I asked him, I guess I, bit of, I was about 8 or 10 when he did that, and I said, why are you doing this? He said, it's more hopeful. I said, Dad, you're going out. I said, you're going out of the frying pan and into the fire. I mean, you know, you're going from one very fundamentalistic, uh, traditional religion to another. But that was his choice, and um, he was an interesting man. He he was a character. So, Doc, tell me about yourself. It looks like you've got a PhD in poli sci, political science, mm-hmm. from from the yeah, University from of the Iowa. University of Iowa, and. Um, Spent a number of years working at a think tank in Iowa called the Public Interest Institute, and their website, for anyone who wants to visit there, is limitedgovernment.org. And then I came out to Washington, D.C., worked for uh, the Capital Research Center, and then um, the National Center for Public Policy Research, then the office of uh, Representative Jeff Fortenberry, then I spent about four years with Investors Business Daily, which was really good um, 
good place to work as I was working on this uh, a book because the book involved you know a lot of interviews and getting to know you know uh, your interview subjects and you know working in an actual newspaper was was very beneficial for for you know developing that and then um, I really wanted to go back into healthcare policy and I'm now back with the National Center I'm working as a senior fellow there. And just uh, just about a month ago, a little less than that, uh, they published my book, Medicare's Victims, How the U.S. Government's Largest Health Care Program Harms Patients and Impairs Physicians. It's available at uh, Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble, both uh, paperback versions and um, electronic versions. Very good. And I have a copy of it. And Of course, you... Uh you and I got together late in the week, so I, I haven't had an opportunity to read much of it. But I've read bits and pieces, and uh, you know, I think that you have uh, uh, some good arguments for the problems, uh, and, and we can talk about the problems. And I think one of them being that you feel that the people who are disabled are not being uh, well served by this program, which was one of the intents of the Medicare program, and. Uh, uh, you, you know, you're, you you bring in a lot of, of personal uh, vignettes of people and, and the problems they've had with their disabilities and being able to get coverage. Uh, mm-hmm. And you've, how many people did you talk to? You must have talked to a bunch of people. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to say off the top of my head because there were a lot of people who declined to go on the record, and even though I thank them in the book, but, you know, uh, people who are, you know, oftentimes ill and just, you know, uh, may talk to you for a bit but declined to go on the record, that is kind of a common occurrence. Um, gosh, between doctors and patients, I probably talked to... Mm, I probably talked to at least a hundred people for this book, or so, you know, somewhere close to that, yeah. Yeah. and probably close to half of that was patients. Um, although it, it probably leaned a little more toward doctors, because doctors, um, you know, I seldom had any trouble uh, getting them to go on the record or talk with me. It seems like for every uh, two doctors, there's four opinions: the first one and the second one. So. Oh, you got that. <laughs> Oh, you know, you can put three doctors in a room, and they'll come out with five different opinions and uh, agree on nothing. So, my dean of the medical school, Art Keeney, when I went was at Louisville, he said, "Billy, I got a bunch of fighter pilots, and I got to meld them into a bomber crew." I said, "Good luck, dean. <laughs> I don't think we got very far." But so, so tell me, what what is if you could put it into one paragraph? What what is your your nut? What is your uh, object in writing this book? What is it you want sure. to convey um, to folks? Well, what I convey is that it's oftentimes the sickest people who suffer under Medicare because they lack political power, um, by which I mean the ability to, to influence Congress on, on Medicare policy. If you look, for example, at most seniors, uh, many of them actually get good treatment under Medicare, uh, and you know, that's reflected, say, for example, in public opinion polls where Medicare is still quite popular. But um, they have a great deal of political power. They vote at rates higher than anybody else. Uh, they're very easy to organize because most of them belong to retirement communities or um, uh, senior centers. 
but people who time. are oftentimes very ill uh, oftentimes run up against Medicare's policies that can, you know, uh, make them worse. And the reason is, is that, number one, not that many people, relatively speaking, get seriously ill each year. So their votes don't amount to much come election time. And given the condition they're in, they're not really uh, able to do much uh, organizing, protesting, trying to uh, uh, get media coverage and all the other things that um, can get the attention of Congress to uh, to make Medicare pol- uh, to make changes in Medicare policy. So, you know, the nut of it is that uh, you know the treatment you get under Medicare is often contingent on political power. Those without political power can some can oftentimes you know. Uh, uh, Hey, uh, you know, can oftentimes run afoul of Medicare, and it is oftentimes the sickest patients who who suffer the most. Well, and I think there's more to it than that. I think you're looking at it from a socio-economic, political uh, aspect. But l- l- let me give you, a, for instance, my uh, assistant office manager, my back office whip. Her husband uh, was let go from his job a few years ago because he had a bad back, mm-hmm. and I had seen him off and on for a couple of years, and I was trying to figure out, now, why is this guy's back so bad? I mean, he had been at a desk job for a number of years. I'm sure he did mm-hmm. uh, some hard labor early on. And then one day he pulled up. He had on long sleeve shirts, and he came in with a short sleeve and bent his arm, and he had psoriasis. And for those of you who don't know, psoriasis is that plaque-like shiny uh, uh, rash or uh, mm-hmm. flat growth on the on the extensor parts of the of the joints, and it's a skin condition, but it's an autoimmune condition. It's related to rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, and it carries with it a very, very bad arthritis, which focuses a lot of times in the low back, in the, in the sacroiliac joint. And I said, holy moly, why didn't you tell me? He said, oh, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. And so he had been unemployed, and they were struggling, but uh, with with my discovery and workup and proof and it you know it took a year or a year and a half whatever the waiting term is to get on but he did finally get on disability and uh, has certainly had a better life because we've got him on the appropriate medications so i don't think it's just uh, from your from the point of view you're coming at i think there are a lot of situations where the doctors and the nurses and the physical therapists we just miss things uh, inadvertently, either because we don't know or because the patient doesn't know to tell us things. And I think the other side of it is that there are a lot of people who try to get on Social Security disability who don't deserve it. And that really clogs up the situation and makes it difficult for doctors to uh, be positive and be willing to assess patients who do really have problems and need to get on. So you hear oh, that in the I, lunchroom I, all the time. Sure. I, I wouldn't disagree with, really with any of that. Um, but uh, what I would add, though, is oftentimes, you know, people who are genuinely ill uh, find it very difficult to get treated because of uh, Medicare's policies. I'll give you uh, just a quick example here. Uh, Sean Plowman, a young man who uh, I interviewed for the book, uh, he went on Social Security disability when he was in his 20s and then, you know, entered the uh, the two-year waiting period to get on Medicare. 
years earlier, he'd had cancer in his leg and had a number of operations uh, because of it that caused him a great deal of pain. And when he went on uh, Social Security Disability Insurance and went in the Medicare two-year waiting period, he was at loose ends and was unable to afford the the pain medication uh, that he needed and suffered from just, you know, excruciating pain during that uh, during that two-year period. So, you know, there can be people even who, you know, uh, do try to, you know, get medical care and, you know, Medicare's policies, uh, uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, interfere with it. Uh, well, I think that's that's true to a certain degree, but there's also other resources that that can be found, and uh, certainly there's enough cheap pain uh, narcotic analgesics out there, narcotics for guys listening at home, or things like Percocet and Vicodin and oxycodone, morphine, all those sort of things. And, uh, it's a, that's, yeah. and that's, a fi- that's a fair point, and yep. he and his mother tried to <laughs> avail themselves of some of those services, uh, but it was kind of a case of his mother had certain issues at the time, and you know she was unable to uh, really give him much help, and I think he was just in such a you know constant state of pain that uh, it was you know he just found it too difficult, and and you know yeah those services are available, but you know Medicare kind of still has this policy that uh, you know this waiting period that puts people kind of in this position, and um, yeah. you know the reason that the the uh, this this waiting period has been in place since 1973, and Congress has never uh, come close to um, uh, uh, has never come close to reducing reducing it, or let yeah. alone eliminating it. Is that uh, you know the the disabled don't have that sort of political clout. Uh, they vote at rates lower than in fact the uh, population in general. Uh, when you look at the actual waiting period, it's even worse because uh, you know less than two million people are in it at any one given time which may seem like a lot, but when you spread it out over, say, 435 congressional elections and 100 uh, Senate elections, it's pretty diffuse. No, it's a small and number. Yeah. A small number. And, you know, yeah, look, uh, like, I, like I said earlier, you know, there, a lot of the people who enter the waiting period are pretty ill, and they're not going to be engaging in political activities. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the disabled are, are people who at times can fall through the cracks because of, of Medicare's policies. I don't. I don't doubt that there are the there are people who do fall through the cracks, but there are also a lot of situations which can be ameliorated if you if you hook up with the right person, the right doctor, the right uh, clinic, and uh, you know I think we're seeing uh, seeing. And thank this, God for that. <laughs> yeah, and I think that we're seeing the the uh, the you know the generosity and charity of 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 the American people with the things like the Wounded Warrior Project. Um, mm-hmm. Now, how? But but the problem is, is where are you going to get the money if you bring everybody on immediately? I mean, the screenings alone are expensive, and then once you get on to Medicare, there's that chronic care. Uh, in Florida, uh, Governor Scott has pushed all of the Medicaid people into HMO, Medicaid HMOs, which mm-hmm. gives them certainly less medical coverage than I receive as a Medicare recipient with the secondary. However, they expanded, as you know, the Medicaid roles with Obamacare. That was the bottom line for it, was to give the, those who make less money more medical care and spread it out a little bit. 
just distribution, as the American Medical Association calls it. So, uh, you know, the, you got you've got a lot of problems. Not only do you have the problem of lack of political clout, but there's also a monetary uh, issue. And I was talking before you came on the show about the projections from the Congressional Budget Office that our our interest oh, yeah. on our national debt alone is going to be our gross domestic product by 2040. That's oh, well, by, 20, by, by 2029, uh, Medicare net of interest in the budget is going to absorb one of uh, $5 of the federal budget. And oh, about yeah. 12 years later, it'll absorb one, one out of every four. You're, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. However, I mean, we spend close to $600 billion on Medicare. So I think a lot of these problems can be solved without uh, spending more. And I, I note this in the early, early in the book, in Chapter 1, I say, look, you know, it would be tempting to say that you know, a lot of these problems would be, uh, uh, could be solved if we spent more money, if you know, the taxpayers were more generous. Uh, and I, I use that term a bit facetiously, and not mm-hmm. that they're, you know, as though they're not generous enough already. Um, but it, it would be a mistake to kind of do that because I think, you know, the way Medicare is run, it's a top-down bureaucracy. It's a system of price controls, and that means that the resources are going to be, if you'll pardon the, the term, the economic term, are, are misallocated. Um, the, uh, you know, there's a lot of, for example, overtreatment in, in, uh, in Medicare, and um, there's also just a lot of bureaucratic paperwork that gets eaten up, uh, you know, that eats up Medicare's uh, reimbursements that, you know, doctors have to fill out. And I think there's just a, a lot more room in there to, to cover things that need to be covered. And what I push at the end of the book is that, look, you know, we should uh, have patients deciding how Medicare's resources are spent, Give them, you know, a substantial accounts out of which they pay for their Medicare, their medical care directly. Give them some incentive to save so that, you know, if they don't use all of the account, uh, they get to keep a percentage at the end of the year uh, to, of of the money, and uh, you know, they can spend on what they want. And I think that'll do two things. I mean, number one, it'll it'll encourage uh, Medicare's patients to. Uh, watch how much health care they use to look for better deals on health care and do probably pro- it also gives them some incentive to stay healthier because it means that you know the more money they get to keep at the end of the year and I think on the provider side it would give them incentive to find more ways to provide uh, care at uh, lower costs and and better quality because you know that is the way to to attract patients so I think the um, Medicare system, the money that's that's there could be far, far, you know, spent far more efficiently than it than it is. Um, excuse me, than it is now. Well, uh, you know, you're talking about basically a health savings account only uh, federally administrated uh, because of the need to have a, uh, still have an insurance policy, which Medicare basically is or mm-hmm. was meant to be. Uh, so, I mean, uh, you, you're going to have a hard time, I think, and, and I've said this to other conservative friends, selling something like this because people are going to say, wait a minute, you know, w- w- how does this work? It's too confusing. Why can't I just go to the doctor? Why do I have to shop around? And, uh, you know, a lot of the older people, a lot of uh, people in my age group, they like the HMOs. They like the Medicare Advantage plans, the HMOs, mm-hmm. because they mm-hmm. get – their basic medications for quote quote free. Of course, nothing's free, but you know they don't have to put out or they don't have much outlay, and uh, they do have access uh, somewhat limited, but they still have access to health care. 
Uh, how are you going to sell this to people? I mean, how are you going to say, look, you've, you've got 2,500 or 5,000 a year. Let's say we're 5,000 a year per person in Medicare to spend on your health. Well, I actually, uh, well, it actually, it, it would be a total of, of 75,000, 5,000 up uh, for a smaller account. And then if you move through that, uh, to a $70,000 account for the bigger expenses. And then, you know, we have, uh, as you're well aware, we have Medigap plans that cover cost sharing. Now, my vision for Medigap plans would be to cover anything that's uh, above 75000 although there are not many Medicare patients who run uh, above 75000 a year, so it shouldn't be that hard to, to cover that. But as for selling it, well, number one, I say just leave the Medicare Advantage program alone. People who want to continue in that, let them continue in that. Uh, the other thing is that you would have to have a transition period, I think, of at least five years before this new program would go into effect. And anyone who's on the current program, with you know, by the time we reach that five years, can either switch to the new one or they can. Um, uh, uh, stay with the current Medicare program. And I will uh, also, uh, you know, in the, the final chapter of the book, it's called trade-offs because, you know, any reform involves trade-offs. You win in some areas and lose in others, and the best you can do is try to maximize the benefits and minimize the costs. And at the end of the book, I look at, you know, are we willing to to do this are we willing to shop around for medical care are we willing to do that sort of thing and i quote an article from from health affairs that, that uh you know polled uh, a group of people you know and they they don't granted they don't particularly like thinking about things like cost and price when it comes to medical care so uh on that hand it doesn't look particularly good but if you look at some other areas uh for example a um uh, an experiment that the CalPERS system uh, engaged in um, a few years ago uh, where uh, they basically gave people a set amount for, like, joint replacements of, of $30,000 and said, you know, if you go to a hospital that's on this list, we'll pick up the entire tab. If you don't, you know, you have to cover the remaining amount. And what they found is that, you know, a number of people didn't go to those the hospitals that were on the list, but in fact, uh, even though they didn't, the prices at the other hospitals uh, dropped below thirty thousand. So, uh, and I, I, my guess would be that they told the doctors, "Look, I've got thirty thousand to spend, and and you know that's it." And uh, uh, you know, it 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 largely worked. So, you know, on the one hand, it you're right. I mean, people may not be accustomed to to doing that, but on the other hand, there's evidence that they are and. You know whether it would work. Um, this is what I would suggest: is that you know Medicare try some what's what's known as demonstration projects, which are, you know, they try a new system in a few areas around the country to see if it works. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, then you know we have to come up with some some other kind of reform. Well, you know, I agree with you, and uh, certainly from from where I sit, and we deal with a lot of Canadians, and and a good number of them want to have a cash. Uh, price on on services which is which is fine we're happy to do that basically it's uh, medicare uh, rates which are not bad rates by the way they are no. are they're very uh very affordable and a lot of canadians are very surprised at how inexpensive it is and, <clears throat> and i think that the market forces are driving the cost of health care down i don't think there's any doubt about that and the one of the biggest uh expenditures of course are the hospitals uh 
and the uh, the people that are at end of life with uh, chronic problems who are in the ICU. But I got to tell you now, my wife, who's a nurse practitioner, manager of the office, she uh, and and I've, we've talked about this over and over and over is you got to get your your uh, your agreement up front with the hospitals, especially some uh, you know a, a chain like HCA, which is very uh, very much. Uh, constrained because of uh, the lawyers and the legalities, et cetera, and anti-kickback to the doctors. And she didn't do it. So she went in for an endoscopy, upper and lower, colon and stomach uh, with the scope. And she didn't negotiate, and she didn't ask me to negotiate. And now we got a $6,000 bill for, you know, maybe 30 minutes of procedure time and sitting in a room. And that's after the insurance had paid five or six thousand dollars i mean it, oh, you know it, it's really uh, but but if you had just gone to the to the cfo the chief financial officer who uh, is a good friend and i'm close with him uh and said look what can you do for me because my insurance i haven't met my premium and my deductible yet i mean i haven't met my deductible i've paid my premium but my deductible is five grand and then i've got another two two fifty or five hundred dollars out of pocket and so, which is the same with the silver plan and uh, the uh, exchange program is you're, you're out of pocket, 66250 somewhere in that range before the plan picks up. And basically mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what she's, that's what we're getting billed with. And now I go to the, the CFO and he says, he says, doc, I can't do anything because it's already left the hospital and it's up at the corporate billing office up in Palm Harbor. And they're, they're, they're constrained. They they don't have a choice. It's not like you have somebody up there making decisions. They're they're uh, billers. They're they're coders. They're secretaries. You know, and they're this is what they do. And they're told you have to do this. That's it. So, I I, I understand what you're saying, but I also think that even with that, it's going to take a while to educate people to get them to be able to go to uh, the the computer or to the doctors or to call the offices and and get pricing or have the doctors publish their prices or the hospitals and uh, it, 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 it's doable but it's it's not going to be easy oh i think you're right but i think uh, you know if you had a system where you know lots of seniors now have these accounts and they're paying for their their health care directly there's going to be considerable pressure on hospitals and clinics and so forth to make their prices transparent. I mean, let's face it, one of the problems we have with our healthcare system is there is not a great deal of, of price transparency right now. And without price transparency, uh, you know, our healthcare system is just far less efficient. Uh, would it be, you know, would it take time to, to get to a level where, you know, we have a great deal of price uh, transparency and would it be difficult yeah I, I agree with you on that but you know uh we have to take the first step somewhere well i agree now here's the problem though i don't think it's the hospitals hca you know they'll send you a bill and I'll, i mean you can look right right at it now you can go and ask the the chief financial officer and he'll tell you exactly what the costs are and what medicare will pay and what your insurance will pay and all that the problem is not that it's that medicare is not transparent part a the doctors, we don't even know what the hospitals are being paid. And the, the first transparency has to be at the top. It has to be with Medicare itself. Then people will see it. And I've had a number of older patients who come in, and they have these bills for fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 for their gallbladder. 
and they say, this is outrageous. How can HCA charge this kind of money? How can Health Care Corporation of America do this to us? And I say, well, look here, this is what Medicare will allow at $6,000. Well, why are they putting sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 on here? Well, that's a financing uh, issue, and that's not something that has anything to do with, with what Medicare's prices are. So I think that the first spot or the first place that we need to start for transparency, well, I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer is our government and, and Medicare. Let's, find, let's see what the Part A rates are. I mean, I, I don't know what they are, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not entirely certain what they are either. You have to really kind of dig through a lot yeah. of, um, of uh, HHS regulations to kind of oh, yeah. find out. And each, you know, each hospital has its own um uh you know set uh, what what they call the conversion factor that you know turns the yep. the value numbers into an actual price uh it, it's actually pretty easy to find out there's a good website under uh, uh CMS that allows you to find out what physician prices are under Medicare for various things uh you have to search around a little bit for it but once you find it it's actually quite quite useful um, I, you know, I, I think that you know, get, trying to get Medicare to be or CMS to be more transparent is, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it, it's it's oftentimes a, a case of sort of banging your head against a brick wall, and then every once in a while you make a crack in the brick wall. I just think price transparency has to come, you know, based on uh, comes from demand from patients and. Uh, the only way to really do that is to have the patients pay directly uh, for for the care. Uh, you know, as long as um, the uh, you know Medicare is um, uh, you know paying the price, I think they're probably going to feel pressure from hospitals and other groups to uh, make the prices as non-transparent as as possible. Probably because it's to the hospital's advantage and to Medicare's. Yeah, and, and, to and to the health, well. and to and to the insurers that are have the Medicare Advantage programs, the, you know, if it's it's been cut. But if you had seen the amount of money they were paying per patient per month on an HMO type scale, I mean, I have neighbors, and he sold uh, his business to big corporate entity, and he made 120 million gross. I think mm. the net was 80 million, and uh, you know, he started. Uh, some clinics here in St. Petersburg, Tampa Bay area, and built them up. And he had 20 or 30 clinics and, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 uh, patients. And the doctors were seeing uh, a limited number of patients and making a couple hundred thousand a year. And he came out of it making a hundred million. <laughs> but uh, if, if we had access easily to these, and of course, government and business are not going to want to show that, but if we had that, I think that would be the game changer. Listen, Doc, I got to get a fresh cup of coffee. I got to empty one end and fill up the other. Can you hang on and I'll be right back? Sounds good to me. All right, buddy. I'll be right back. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, and I'm talking with, I'll let you pronounce your name, Doc. Uh, David Hobert. Hobert. All right. We'll be right back. Chris, put on some music, buddy. I'll on the way.
with SRN News. I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Memphis police are looking for the man who shot a officer to death last night. Memphis Police Director Tony Armstrong says the victim was 33-year-old Sean Bolton. He was apparently murdered during a traffic stop. The man is uh, still at large, the person who shot him. Experts in France are preparing to analyze a wing flap that could be from Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. Supporting that suspicion is word from Malaysia's transport ministry that the flap does come from a Boeing 777. Secretary of State John Kerry has met with top officials in Cairo as the U.S. and Egypt resumed formal security talks that were last held six years ago. And the United Arab Emirates' top prosecutors referred 41 people to trial on charges of planning to carry out terrorist acts with the aim of overthrowing the government. This is SRN News. Michael Medved dispels vaccination myths. One of the things about which there is no doubt is that vaccines have been a blessing beyond imagining. There is no basis at all other than Jenny McCarthy's brilliant imaginings to believe that somehow vaccines cause autism. We are talking about life-giving science. The Michael Medved Show, afternoons at 4, right before Hugh Hewitt at 6 on AM 860. The Answer. We've been hearing a lot about Uber lately, so we decided to get out there and talk to some actual Uber partners to get our questions answered. Is signing up to drive with Uber really hard? Nope. Signing up with Uber is super easy. It was simple and easy. Okay, but can I drive my own car? Yes, yes, yes. You get to drive your own car. But my roommate doesn't even have a car. Can she drive with Uber? They can help her get a car, too. I wouldn't be able to get a vehicle if it wasn't for Uber. It took me less than six hours to get a car. So you could just sign up and earn money. Sign up, drive, and you make some money. You're saying I can just use the smartphone app to make money whenever I want? Yeah, you just open the app whenever you feel like driving. All I have to do is turn on my phone, hit the road, and I start making money. Are the hours good? I work less hours and I make more money. I'm my own boss now, so I set my own hours. Okay, this all sounds pretty great. What do you think I should do? You need to sign up for Uber. You can make serious, life-changing money when you drive with Uber. Get started today at drivewithuber.com. That's drivewithuber.com drivewithuber.com Affordable family fun is what you get with every Clearwater Threshers game. See the stars of tomorrow playing today in the Florida State League at beautiful Bright House Field. There's lots of promotions too, including fireworks, concerts, Dollar Tuesdays, Feeding Frenzy Mondays, Thirsty Thursdays, and Brunch on Sundays. Find out more in the complete schedule by going to their website at threshersbaseball.com Threshers Baseball, get hooked! Today into tomorrow will be mostly cloudy with a couple of showers and a thunderstorm. The high today will be 83. The low tonight will be 77. And the high tomorrow will be 84. Tuesday, periods of clouds and sunshine with a shower or thunderstorm around. Tuesday's high will be 86. And that's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Sally Sherman for AM 860. The Answer. WGULAM, the answer. We are on iHeartRadio, and by the way, I am worldwide on the web at 860-WGUL.com. Click Listen Live, and you got me every Sunday, 9 to 10 a.m. 
You can also go down to my little my little box on the weekend schedule and click and get the podcast if you're interested in hearing something that has been uh, archived for your benefits. And I'm talking today with Dr. David Hoberg. Is that right, David? You got it. Hoberg, and he has written a really interesting book called Medicare's Victims, How the U.S. Government's Largest Health Care Program Harms Patients and Impairs Physicians. Now, when you say impairs physicians, you mean that that we get free booze or in the evening or what? No? <laughs> well, that might actually be a better system. <laughs> <laughs> I like that kind of impairment. I think I like yeah. this guy. <laughs> now, we have to build that into the budget um, first. <laughs> yeah, if, 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 if uh, Medicare were just to send them all, you know, a nice bottle of Belveni or Jameson, I think uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think doctors would have less frustration with Medicare. No, what That's I mean pretty- by impairs physicians is that uh, a lot of physicians find it difficult to uh, provide quality treatment to their patients because of Medicare's reimbursement system. Um, Medicare switched to its current system of price controls in the early 90s, and uh, the pay, uh, the controls, price controls it has for physician visits had some unintended consequences. The one of which is this rather odd system where physicians get paid better if they spend less time with patients than if they spend more time with patients. And um, I look at a couple of doctors uh, in, uh, this is particularly Chapter 8, one of them's a neurologist uh, just outside of Cleveland named uh, Dr. Dariush Sagafi, and uh, he actually makes house calls uh, to his patients, and to his knowledge, he's really the only neurologist in his area that does that, and, and one of the reasons he started doing that is he had a lot of elderly patients on Medicare, many, uh, quite a few of them with dementia, and, um, you know, they have a hard time making it to his office. So he said, let's do, you know, house calls. And what he found is that visiting their house was uh, really an eye-opener for, for them. He, he was able to find out all sorts of other things that were contributing to their health problems, you know, whether or not they were able to maintain their uh, medication uh, regimen. Uh, or, you know, you hear about um, uh, uh, seniors taking falls all the time. You wonder why. Well, uh, you know, there's a throw rug here. There's a little coffee table there. Uh, you know, all sorts of fall hazards uh, that you know he's been able to fix. Uh, he can see if the patient's having trouble, you know, moving around, getting into their bed, and so forth. He just said, you know, it gave him a bird's eye view of of what could be causing more problems for them in their own home. Now uh, he confided or told me that uh, he earns about $140,000 a year. He's, he's not hurting um, by any means, but uh, the average neurologist earns around 230000 a year, so that kind of puts you know, Dr. Sagafi somewhere near the bottom 10% of, of neurologists. And for me, I, I had to ask why. You know, why is someone who's going out four days a week, starting usually at 10 a.m. and often ending at 9 p.m., who will routinely spend at least an hour with his, his, his patients and often more, um, you know, why is he in the, the bottom uh, uh, level? And it's because, you know, the longer he spends with his patient, the, the, the worse uh, he gets paid because of um, 
uh, Medicare's payment system. And he, he said to me, look, you know, I could spend, I know I could earn more if I spent less time with, with my patients. I've struggled with that for 10 years, uh, but I just can't do it. And I think it's a problem because, you know, I think someone like Dr. Sagafi should earn uh, well above the median, maybe, you know, hypothetically 300000 The reason is, is that, you know, other doctors would then uh, you wonder, you know, other neurologists would wonder why it is, you know, he's making such a good income. Uh, well, it wouldn't take long for them to figure out, oh, it's because he's he's doing home visits. Well, you know, I want to earn well, I'll start doing home visits. And, and as a result, um, you know, his income acts as kind of a signal to other doctors. And as a result, the um, uh, I think the, the level of medical care would improve across the board. But, you know, as long as we have a system of price controls in Medicare, that, that really is not going to happen. Well, uh, you know, I, I've heard this over the decades. I'm, I'm now not graduated in 77 from the University of Louisville Medical School, so I'm almost, what, 40 years, 35 to 40 years into this. And mm-hmm. those, are, those are nice folksy, uh, toasty tales to hear. But uh, really that, to me, and having seen medicine change and having predicted a lot of what's happening now, uh, you know, I think that that's an absolute waste of, of, of manpower. And I said this when I did some work in the National Public Health Service to pay off my uh, student loan and going out in the country. I said, this is stupid. You know, you got a hospital that's fully equipped 20 miles away, 30 miles away. We don't need doctors out here in the middle of nowhere. What we need are buses to take these people to the to the bigger cities and the bigger centers where there's more uh, ability to quickly and efficiently work them up. And, uh, you know, and I know patients say, well, he doesn't spend enough time with me. Well, you know what my patients say? They say, and I tell them, too, I say, look, you don't want me to sit here and chit-chat with you. You want me to find out what's wrong and fix it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's what I want. I said, if you want to hold hands and sing campfire songs, then, you know, you can talk to one of the girls in the back office or if you need some uh, some uh, help at home, social services uh, type of help, then we'll get the visiting nurses to come in, which Medicare pays for a certain number of visits. Uh, I think that we can do this by uh, actually hiring more social workers and more visiting nurses rather than trying to get physicians to see fewer patients and spend more time with them. We have an effective decrease in the number of physicians as it is because the the guys and gals coming out now, they don't want to work like I do. They don't want to get up at six in the morning and uh, start making hospital rounds at eight and work till it's done, which in the winter may be seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. In the summer, we're slower here. They don't want to do that. They want a nine to five. And you've got a lot more women coming into the medical field as doctors, and they're going to want to stop and have babies. And uh, one of the OBGYN senior guy, he, he said, he, I said, why are you still working, Jeff? And he said, because my partners keep getting pregnant and having babies. And so there's, <laughs> there is an effective decrease. And you say, well, look, we had a million doctors last year, and this year we got 1.1 million. Not really. Not really. And if we send people out to make house calls, which – I have argued against for decades, and I grew up with two doctors. Uh, you know, it's it, it's going to decrease the effectively the number of physicians further that are available to do the work. What we need is not doctors who are who are more folksy and want to go out, but doctors who realize there's something wrong in your house, and I'm sending the visiting nurse out there, 
And they said, well, no, no, I don't want the nurse. I said, well, just one or two visits just to make sure you're straight on your medicine or let's get your daughter or your son in here. And, you know, I deal with the oldest population on earth percentage-wise in St. Pete. We have the largest percentage-wise number of 70, 80, 90, 100-year-olds of any city that keeps records in the world. And so I know what goes on. And I did all that as a young doctor and a medical student. I went out to the homes and I looked around and I said, I got it. You know, I understand the problem here. Me going out there uh, and say there's a problem is not going to fix the problem. Sure. Well, I understand what you're saying, and I think there's a lot of good points there. Uh, Let me uh, just make a couple of quick responses. One, um, you know, this Dr. Sagafi was not, you know, being Mr. Folksy. I mean, he was spending his time focusing on one, you know, medical problem after another. Uh, This was not just, you know, uh, a bunch of uh, chit chat. Um, now, uh, it's inefficient, though, David. It's inefficient. It's not efficient. Well, I, you know, I guess you could talk to Doctor Sagafi about that. But fair, fair enough. I mean, there are other ways. There, you, you, you've raised some other ways that this could be done. Um, and I would just go back to um, the, uh, you know, the ref- uh, some of the reforms I talked about, which would enable people. Uh, to pay for some of those things, like the buses you suggest to help them get to uh, uh, the doctor's appointments or, uh, you know, uh, the hospital and so forth. Um, you know, whatever would, would work best, whatever would be more efficient, uh, you know, it's just very hard to get that type of a system with, um, you know, our, our current Medicare system. So you may be right on that. I'm, I'm um, although my experience with Dr. Sagafi and Dr. Braddock is, um, you know, is that it wasn't really inefficient, but, um, you know, like I said, there are more than, uh, you know, your ideas may be, for that may may be best, and you've been at it. I have not, so you know I will defer to you on that. But I will just say that uh, you know a system in which I think the patients uh, pay directly. You know, you know we will come up with. Uh, we are more likely to come up with uh, whatever is the most efficient system. Well, I agree with you, and I think that uh, that any time you have to open up your wallet and give somebody money, you're going to stop and say, "Wait a minute, what am I getting here?" And, you know, the women are the best at this, and you can see this at the checkout line at the grocery store. They all stop and look at the bill before they leave. They look at everything, and they say, wait a minute, you charged for two and only had one. And, you know, they pay attention when they're checking out, more so than the guys do. We're like, yeah, we got what we need. What's a buck or two here? Let's go. But uh, I agree with you that that there is always more accountability when you go to buy a car and it's your money, you're going to work a little bit harder to see if, that you get what you want and get what you think is the best deal uh, that, for most people. But then there's on the other side of the coin, there are going to be people that you give uh, you know, a, a health savings account, federal health savings account to, and there are going to be doctors who will say, oh, I'll take care of you. And you, you come in here, and this is what I'm charging, and I'm going to give you this and that and this and that. And they may not give them what they need, but they'll make them feel good. And I've heard doctors say that, too. They'll say, you know, Handelman, you may be right, but they trust me because I make them feel good. I make them – I'm warm and fuzzy. There are doctors who do that under the present system as well. Sure, Uh, of course. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, when people control their own money and have some incentive to save, you know, there might be at least a small reduction in some of that. So. 
I agree with uh, you, uh, but I just say I just I, I put that caveat there because we're still going to need some kind of controls to say, listen, we're not going to pay you for spending an hour for with with somebody who has Parkinson's disease and needs their medications adjusted and needs home health care. You're going to get paid what everybody else gets paid for that patient visit, and that is an incentive for doctors to get moving uh, more efficiently. I would hope. And I think with the technology improving, and this is my big concern about Obamacare, is that the research and development is slowed down tremendously under this uh, new health care plan. And th- our salvation is going to be in the technology and the ability to get patients in, get what needs to be done quickly and efficiently and to the point, and get them what they need and get them out. Yeah, no, I, I, I largely agree with you there. Um, I uh, although I think you know markets and and patients paying directly would uh, uh, you know get the uh, the doctor's time down. Uh, and you know, look, there are always going to be some patients I suspect that will need you know lengthy visits with the doctors because you know they have multiple problems and you know so uh, any type of top down control could you know could harm that that limits. Uh, that could, you know, harm patients who really genuinely need a lot of time with their physicians. So I think, uh, sure. you know, a system where patients and physicians, you know, directly contract for the price, so to speak, is probably the best way to go on that. And I can't argue with that. And there are, we have, uh, you know, with our older population, you know, I say if you're in your 60s, that's pediatrics for me. And you're not a senior citizen until you're over 100. So uh, <laughs> then I've, I've got, you know, 60 to 70 peds, 70, 80 is adolescent, 80 to 90 is adult medicine, 90 and above is you're getting into the geriatric area. But, yeah, I, th- I think you're right, and there are patients that have just a lot of problems that have to be addressed. But that doesn't mean that we necessarily need to spend more time with them as physicians. What it means is that we need to address those problems, and a lot of them, are, are not big deals. They can be addressed by uh, ancillary staff. And actually, my office uh, works most efficiently when I've got a couple of physician assistants or nurse practitioners. And basically, they act as my interns. And I go room to room and oversee and say hi to the patients, kind of get the feel for the nut of the thing. And uh, then I can quickly uh, give them directions and give the office staff directions. This one needs a chest X-ray and a blood count because they have pneumonia. This one needs this, and you also you also have to do that because it's a part of the problem that they're having. Their gout is adding to their heart disease, so get their uric acid levels down. But uh, I, you know, I, I think that it's a romantic ideal to spend a lot of time with the patient, uh, and there are certainly going to be those who you have to. There's no doubt about that. But I think the majority of the patients who need a lot of time can be handled efficiently and effectively by just knowing how to communicate with them and, and cut them off so that you get to the point in a hurry and pull out the, the real nut of the thing. It's, it's not an easy task, but, you know, the psychiatrists, they used to spend 45 minutes with a patient. Now they're, mm-hmm. you know, it's all done by uh, uh, mental health workers and psychologists and social workers, and basically they're just there to say, how you doing, and is this new medicine working, and give them five or ten minutes, and, you know, and then get them on the medication that will be helpful uh, and will not give them as many side effects. So you got a lot of good points, Doc, but I think we need to get together uh, a little bit more 
and time allowing, we'll do this again sometime. And, and I think that well, I'll, I'll just carry- I'll just finish with the first thing you were saying about age. Uh, I'm currently 45, so that just made me feel wonderful. And uh, <laughs> and, if I ever, and if I ever move down to Florida, I'll look you up uh, about being my uh, my family physician. So right. uh, I uh, I'm impressed. Thanks for coming on the show, David. Dr. David Hoberg, in his book, is Medicare's Victims Have the U.S. Government's Largest Health Care Plan, Harms Patients and Impairs Physicians. We're getting near the end of the show, David, and want to thank the audience again, as usual. Love you guys. i got to get out of here. Chris is yelling at me. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.